You're listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. This is your host, Stephen Roach. This is Season 6, Episode 3. Mako Fujimura is a leading contemporary artist, author, and speaker whose process-driven, refractive, slow art has been described by David Brooks of the New York Times as a small rebellion against the quickening of time. In a culture driven by speed and instant gratification, the idea of slow art runs counter to our normal modes of living. Mako's approach to art challenges our relationship to time and invites us into a more reflective approach to life, creating, and viewing art. In this episode, I had the honor to speak with Mako as he worked in his Princeton, New Jersey studio. We discuss his process of art making, culture care, and the importance of slowing down, not only in art, but in our relationships and in life. Music for this episode is provided by Alfred Sergel Four with compositions from his latest release, Sleepless Journey. You can find links to today's artists as well as additional segments with Mako on the importance of mentoring emerging artists, beauty, a glimpse into his daily practices, and advice for artists of faith working in the world of art. These are in the show notes of this episode. This is my interview with contemporary artist Mako Fujimura. Mako, thank you so much for taking the time to join me on Makers and Mystics. I've been looking forward to this conversation for a long time. Uh, Yeah, same here. I'm grateful to be part of this. Absolutely. I'm really fascinated today, honestly, to talk to you a bit about your own process as an artist. And one of the first things I learned about you is that your art is rich in Japanese tradition. Forgive me if this pronunciation is wrong, but the Nyonga tradition. Yes, that's correct. And and uh, first, just to give context to our listeners, I am sitting in my studio in Princeton, and uh, I am uh, in a horse barn, <laughs> and uh, mm-hmm. converted horse barn. And here in front of me are materials, minerals, and uh, precious materials like gold, I, I have silk, platinum, uh, oyster shell, pulverized oyster shell, and malachite in front of me. Um, I was making Japanese calligraphy ink, which is called sumi, and that is done by rubbing a stick, which is about a 100-year-old stick. Wow. Against a uh, suzuri, uh, which is a slate, and you rub the stick against the slate with water and that creates ink um, it's a very slow process it takes about an hour to prepare mm-hmm. so almost everything i do uh, is linked to 16th and 17th century japanese art uh, even though what i do is contemporary art uh, so my work really doesn't fit into a neat category um, some people call my work abstract but they really are not. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> um, some people call it Nihonga, uh, as you noted, but then it doesn't really fit into that genre either. Um, mm-hmm. Some people call it contemporary art, but 
it doesn't really fit into that either. So <laughs> I, I am kind of in between uh, all of those. <laughs> well, it's interesting to me because when I look at your work, I can feel the tradition that it comes from. And yet at the same time, it has such a modern and innovative quality to it. Thank you. Uh, I'm curious if you could speak into that a little bit, how tradition and innovation work together in your art. Yeah, so people think about tradition as a static thing. You know, you look back and you study what was done in the past. But to me, tradition is alive and made alive in the practice of the new. So the best way to honor a tradition is to create based on the past. And that's what I do. Um, 16th century and 17th century Japanese history fascinates me. It, it always has. Uh, since college days, I always thought about um, that particular period as my major influence. Um, but it wasn't until I went back to Japan. I was born in Boston and uh, spent my childhood years in Japan, but I hadn't been back, um, having gone back to America in my uh, middle school years. And I, you know, chose American citizenship and stayed in America until after college. And I received this uh, scholarship to go back to Japan. So at that point, you know, my identity was in flux and um, I really didn't know how to navigate, whether it be contemporary art or traditional Japan. I, I really wanted to go to Japan and re-examine myself and the tradition that was there. So I was very fortunate. I had six and a half years to do that, um, ended up with a doctorate level studies in Nihonga and Japanese style painting, uh, studied under some of the great masters um, of 20th century. And so I had a first hand look into particularly 16th and 17th century uh, Japanese history and art and found that some of the ideas to be very relevant today. Um, Japan was going through a feudal war period and uh, it was around uh, the end of 16th century that Japan found itself consolidated. And later on, I found out that that was exactly when the persecution of Christians began in Japan. Mm. And the book and the movie, Silence, uh, recounts that history. Mm -hmm. And I was thrown into all of this. Initially, not be, when I went to Japan, I was not a believer and uh, I left Japan with having been drawn by Christ into Christian faith. And, you know, it was interesting that God would take me to my roots to, for me to discover my faith. And so part of that obviously had to do with 16th and 17th century Japanese history. Mm -hmm. So it, to me, it is being made alive today in my work and in my writings and uh, almost everything I do. 
When we were talking about the Nihonga tradition and you began telling me about these ground materials, these ground minerals and the the gold leaf and the oyster shells, you know, when I hear you talk about that, it seems like such a rigorous process on one hand to even come up with the materials that you're working with, but yet on the other hand, it feels like such a devotional uh, or even contemplative process Totally, it's uh, it's uh, it's a sacred process. I am very aware of God's presence when I'm working. Um, I always felt that studio is for me the closest that I feel to uh, Creator God. And uh, one thing about contemporary art of 20th century, especially in America, in, in particular in New York is that all these immigrants came over, um, people like Mark Rothko and Ashio Goki and De Kooning, and, and they began to, in exile, create works, um, what we now know as abstract expressionism, but uh, most of these people didn't like that word, abstract, because they were really trying to remember the trauma and the past and make new something new out of them and i remember just as much as i was influenced by 16th and 17th century japanese art i was influenced by what they were doing at, at the time early 20 early to mid 20th century and i began to assimilate some of that i think in my work um, in negotiation with the tradition of nihonga because i felt that sacramentality the contemplative um, was part of 20th century art mm-hmm. and this metaphysical capturing of uh, the spirit of the age really was um, profoundly important to me and so as I got to know myself in in Christ, I began to see that as an entry point into the mystery of God, even though many of these artists may not have been aware of that. Um, and there's, a, to me, a profound link between the meditative, com- contemplative tradition of, let's say, medieval times, times when Frangelico painted or uh, when the mystics were writing, mm-hmm. and now. And it's often through contemporary art that I, I see evidences of that. I think you coined the phrase, slow art. <laughs> to describe your work is that is that a phrase that you coined yeah i don't know if i coined it or i i just used it <laughs> you know i mean even when i was a student i was talking about process art and mm-hmm. slow art because that was exactly why what was drawing me to back to japan and mm-hmm. the tea tradition of sen Rikyu, who was a tea master in um 16th century um, is profoundly important, um, a central figure in Japanese aesthetic history, but has, has become one of the most important influences in my life. And what Likyu did was to bring the, the contemplative tea uh, tradition 
and we find that to a point where I don't think Japanese aesthetic uh, can be discussed without him. Uh, ideas such as wabi sabi and all these things that you know we in the West talk about when referring to Japan uh, really was refined during uh, his uh, practice of uh, refining the auto tea. So. These are things that I'm very much connected to, and 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 tea ceremony to me is a very contemporary, edgy tradition. Mm-hmm. There's always mm-hmm. something new being birthed out of it, um, but or even though it's you know uh, centuries old. Well, the idea of slow art here in the West, it almost seems countercultural to this instant yeah. gratification culture that's here. Yeah, totally. And it was it was in Likyu's time too. I, I you know I attribute him to be the father of slow art. Um, when you enter a tea house, everything slowed down um, mm-hmm. intentionally. Even how you get there, you know, you you go through these meandering paths in uh, Kyoto gardens that are intentionally made to slow you down. Uh, mm-hmm. You imagine, well, you know, we might think, well, that was, you know, pre-modern times. But if you imagine a samurai, you know, coming in with a sword and uh, thinking about the next big battle that he has to lead, you can imagine kind of the impact that Riku had on this one, you know, leader's life, right? Uh, making him pay attention to the fallen leaf leaves in you know the stone garden that is um, that he has to meander through in order to get to the gate and the gate is intentionally made small <laughs> it's called Nijiriguchi uh, <laughs> so you have to humble yourself and bow down mm. and remove your sword to enter the tea house wow and uh, which, which is a beautiful metaphor for even our times, and I had simulated this in one of my exhibits, uh, collaboration that I did after 9-11, and uh, one of my friends said, well, instead of the sword, you have to put down your cell phone <laughs> to, <laughs> to enter your tea house. And, and, and uh, he, right. he is absolutely right. I mean, that is that is weaponized, you know, in our yeah. mind. And there's all sorts of synapses firing uh, when we pick up an iPhone and uh, uh, whatever the device we use. And and so that is the reality we live in. But but it's, it's something that people always had this uh, back and forth relationship with. You know, it's it's not something that is new to modern times. To me, it comes across that your work and this mindset that that comes with it it invites the viewer into a sacred space mm-hmm. and uh, just to even uh, encounter the work and I, I think I read something uh, that you wrote in silence and beauty mm-hmm. where you said that the surface of my slow art is prismatic mm-hmm. so at first glance the malachite surface looks green mm-hmm. but if the eye is allowed to linger on the surface it usually takes 10 minutes for the eye to adjust mm-hmm. the observer can begin to see the rainbow created mm-hmm. by layer upon layer mm-hmm. of broken shards of minerals and I, I loved that <laughs> <laughs> yeah so recently you know David Brooks of New York Times wrote uh, about this about culture care and 
slow art because uh, he came into my studio with his wife and what I told him was, you know, you won't be able to see my paintings for about 10 minutes. <laughs> you know, we just have to sit quietly. And uh, uh, credit to him, he, he did um, do that. And, and he was astonished at, you mm -hmm. know, the end of maybe 10, 15 minutes what seemed like a very plain, flat, blue painting came alive with refractive colors. And our brain has been taught to shut down because we have to move on from one information to another. And, and our digital you know, sphere trains us to do that. And even our education trains us to do that. Mm -hmm. But when we just slow down enough, you know, even for 10 minutes, uh, our senses come alive uh, in the right context. And we're amazed at what we see and what we hear and what we feel. And we need that uh, not only uh, just for contemplative practice, but for relational practice. We need that in our community. We need to be able to listen to each other despite our differences. Um, you know, this knee-jerk reaction can only, you know, serve us uh, so far and it actually truncates the uh, deeper conversations that we can, be, we can be having with people that we disagree with. Mm -hmm. And so uh, part of Silence and Beauty journey um, is, is to really experience that, first of all, and in a forced way, uh, the story of silence, what Shusakendo, the novelist who wrote the book Silence, came out in 1966 in Japan. Uh, profoundly, it's, you know, is a, is a very traumatic story of persecution. Mm -hmm. But what he's driving at is that, you know, that persecution is not just the Japanese magistrates, but our modern society. Mm -hmm. um, assaulting us with all these questions that, you know, that we are taunted by uh, regarding not only our faith, but our humanity. And when we are stripped of that at the end of the book and uh, of the movie as well, you know, you, you actually find your authentic self for the first time. Mm -hmm. you, you know, you begin to discover that what you were after all along in your adventure to uh, find this, you know, apostate priest uh, yes. ended up in your own discovery of your own uh, lost soul. And, and that was by intent, uh, and though use trauma in, in order to get to that reality. And, and uh, I don't, necessarily go that route but I, I i do think that slowing down and letting your senses open up is is very important and just to catch our listeners up i'm sure most of them are familiar with the book or, or the movie silence uh, that martin scorsese did and and you worked on that movie as a consultant about japanese culture correct yes uh, special advisor yeah Yes, and so just to make sure that uh, that they know what we're referencing yes. there, but it's interesting this that you're talking about the art of listening is, is the way I would describe it, and, and I think that that's something that there is a real deficit of in our culture and in the West, and yeah. it's something that uh, your art invites us into, and I love that about it, and I believe I read somewhere 
where you talked about how art has become such an ego-driven self-expression. Yeah. But you're really an advocate for art that brings you outside of yourself and, right. and pulls us to, to look beyond. Tell me some about that. Right. So art expression, whether it be art, music, theater, um, has been dominated by this idea of self-expression. And that's what we base everything upon. And in recent times, that has changed a little bit because of international influence um, in cultures and expressions have become broadened, fortunately. But, you know, I, I still think that there is a ongoing, uh, if not a battle, a tension between side of art that connects people and side of art that is ego driven, you know, and mm -hmm. and so I've always noticed in myself that tension. Um, how do you, as an artist, survive or succeed? Well, we think, well, we have to scream, you know, we have to do crazy mm -hmm. things, and we have to. Now that is in part true because we live in a time where you know we have a TV personality as a president, you know, <laughs> where survivor, right, uh, is, is the dominant cultural expression. And, right. But is, is that leading us into a meaningful, more enduring form of uh, leadership and conversation and education and all these things that we care about, you know? And, and if we don't think that's the only way, then what's the alternative? You know, and right. and we, I I wrote my book Culture Care in in part to answer that, but but also to remind myself that there is so much abundance in the universe that 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 can only be accounted for um, if we in some way acknowledge that this world was not necessarily just made for us <laughs> you know but uh, there are you know other operating principles at least that govern and also supersede our limited resource um, closed uh, material world and if that's true and if we in some ways believe that and, and i think we have to if we believe at all in a thing called love <laughs> you know because <laughs> when we experience something like love we we are drawn out of ourselves you know we're mm -hmm. we're brought into the gaze of another or um you are creating a conversation that removes just self-expression, but mm -hmm. into this sacrifice that, you know, we're all, we are all called to and we're all moved by. So why are we moved by it, you know, is, is, is the thing. And, and how is art reflecting that motion, right, that movement outside of ourselves? And, and to me, there was no cogent answer in modern or postmodern theories about art. Um, and that was the beginning of my journey into faith was to rediscover this dimension of expression that superseded yourself was already present in creation, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. that this love that 
God's love, which created the universe, was not just so that we can mechanically pass out what we see and, you know, we can create refrigerators, you know. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it's really, there's, a, there's this extra dimension to it, which you can only be discovered if you're willing to journey into uh, the mystery of love, uh, the, the mystery of extravagance and abundance that you know, exists in, in the universe. Uh, and we can't explain this in a closed material universe, um, mm-hmm. of, you know, just sub- survivor's game. Uh, right. You know, we, can, we, can, we really uh, have limited ourselves, let's say, in thinking that we live in a limited resource environment, so we have to fight our way through, when really the best thing, the most enduring things uh, tend to be the opposite, you know, how to give away your life, how to be merciful to those who cannot give back. Though Those are issues that, you know, today is as relevant as it was 2,000 years ago. I just listened to a recent talk that you gave with uh, Fuller Studios podcast Curated. Yes. And you talked about this idea of cultural estuary. Yes. And uh, in that talk, you suggested that artists are futurists. And so yes. I'm curious if you could elaborate on some of these ideas for me. <laughs> yes. Um, that's in my Culture Care book. I write about an estuary as a term, uh, you know, obviously borrowed from ecological term, but very useful for uh, describing culture. Uh, estuaries are where saltwater and freshwater mix, Hudson, you know, River Basin is an estuary, uh, Chesapeake is an estuary. You really can't have the ocean without the estuary. It's mm-hmm. one of the most abundant, um, you know, it's teeming with life, but it's the most delicate. So when pollution gets to the estuary, it decimates the whole ocean uh, mm-hmm. because what happens in the estuary is, is uh, it's a nexus of, you know, uh, all sorts of creatures coming in through and uh, whether it be striped bass that come in in May and uh, gain strength at the mouth of the river in an estuary and, you know, and then going up um, to spawn and then comes back and regains strength to go out to the ocean. Um, it's a harbor um, and it's a competitive harbor. It's a, it's a very, very, uh, you know, the waves go back and forth. So, it can be dangerous, um, but I I think of vibrant culture that way, um, mm-hmm. and you know we as Christians have a very tenuous relationship with culture. We we, mm. we think we look at it um, as you know we versus them kind of you know well the culture is bad you know we have to avoid and protect our children you know safe for the whole family kind of an idea, mm-hmm. but but. Uh, <laughs> Really, you know, culture is us. Uh, culture mm-hmm. is the water that we swim in, and you cannot uh, protect ourselves or our children from what's happening because we are the, you know, if we're not creating, we are consuming. So the most important antidote to creating a, he- a healthy uh, ecosystem is to create into it with the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. But since Christians have by large disengaged from making into culture, right? So we have not done well (laughs) 
to help to manage the uh, ecosystem. And it's actually related to how the environment has been decimated by industrial purposes, and we, we have not done well. Um, so the, the idea of cultural care is rather than fighting cultural wars uh, in a territory to be defended, you know, why not look at culture as a garden or ecosystem to steward? Now, there may be battles still going on, <laughs> but, you know, the whole idea is to enrich the soil so that everyone can benefit from the fruit that our land can produce. Mm -hmm. And so it's the whole idea of a farmer's market. You know, you, you go to a farmer's market and you, you enjoy things, the fruit of the labor, and um, you make it sustainable. And um, what if art and culture became like that, where it's, mm -hmm. you know, less about consumption. Yes, you are taking in you know, uh, good fruit, but you're also giving it back to, you know, by making um, things yourself. Mm -hmm. And we've kind of forgotten that rhythm. So cultural estuary is one, one term um, that I, I find it fascinating that, you know, because oftentimes artists feel like they're catfish bottom dwelling in the mouth, you know, just surviving uh, in the polluted rivers. <laughs> and, uh, we're like eating up whatever we can gobble up, you know, and, and, and survive, trying to survive. But, you know, I, I say, well, we should be like trout, you know, like uh, swim in schools, swim upstream where there are pure waters and uh, be very selective. You know, if you fly fish, you know what I mean. But, you know, they're very hard to catch because they're very, very selective and discerning about, you know, the insects that they eat. And it's, it's, it depends on the season, right? It depends on every day, the conditions of the river. And, and artists need to be, be that, you know, and we, we need to have discernment. We need to be beautiful. Mm -hmm. And so by doing that, by creating upstream, I think that will help to rejuvenate, uh, you know, all of the ecosystem downstream and beyond. So uh, I, I love that metaphor. Mm-hmm. And that ties into the idea of artists as futurists. Yes. And um, I think you've also right. said that artists uh, should be leaders in generosity as well. Yeah, and I, I have said um, artists as yeah, futurists, but I also said Christians ought to be futurists. You know? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> because we <laughs> believe in the new creation, and we are yes. new creation. And talk about culture being us. You know, what if Christians began to see themselves as makers again? And my next book is all about this. It's called Theology of Making. And uh, it, it brings into the discussion, uh, you know, cultural care discussion that, you know, at the base of creation is, uh, is making. So, uh, as I said, unless you're making, you're consuming. So, you know, how do we make... Uh, help our children to make, become more able makers, and to help uh, clean up the river, 
that way, you know, and, and, and there, are, there are certain issues that we, you know, there are battles that we still have to fight. But overall, you know, we are, those are so that we can take care of the water, take care of the land to, to make something mm-hmm. beautiful into them. And, I love uh, that. you know, and that, that's, that is more proactive than fighting culture wars, which decimates the very territory that you're trying to protect, preserve. Um, it doesn't, it doesn't matter which side you're on. You know, you're demonizing the other side and tainting and poisoning the land by doing so. And it's, it's not only bad stewardship, but, it, but it's counterproductive to the very cause that you believe in. So mm-hmm. um, I, I think artists can lead in this discussion. Um, they don't have to be like me standing up in front, uh, but by making um, with integrity, making faithfully, making uh, things that are fruitful uh, and mm-hmm. bountiful, I think we can be change the metaphor from culture wars to culture care. And, That's beautiful. And, yeah, and that that to me is the ecosystem that I want my children and my grandchildren to thrive in. Maka, that's beautiful. Thank you so much for taking this time to talk with us on Makers and Mystics. Absolutely. My pleasure. And thank you so much for listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. I hope to see you at one of our upcoming live events in New York City, Denver, Colorado, or Frederick, Maryland. You can check our website for details or sign our email list for regular updates. Please be sure to follow us on Instagram at Makers and Mystics and leave us a kind review on iTunes. We'll return next week with our special Bright Wings Poetry episode. Until then, keep creating. The world needs your art.